The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Those are verses uh, 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which is the passage we have under consideration here during this season of Advent in 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at what, what are known as the 13 attributes of divine mercy that are revealed here in this passage in, in Exodus after the sin of the golden calf when God was going to destroy the people and then um, chose not to, relented from the disaster. And in that episode, they learned something of the greatness of divine mercy. What they learned was, is today we're going to be looking at the third attribute, which is just the word El, which is God. So Yahweh, Yahweh, El, um, the Lord, the Lord, a God. And so that, that word God there, it implies title. Yahweh is more like a personal name at some level than El. El is just the generic word for God. Elohim is... Um, God's plural. So El is God. So when you see things like Beth El, house of God, Bethlehem, um, all those were anything that ends with an L like that, Daniel, uh, any name that ends like that, L is, is the operative thing. So you know that the name or the thing has something to do with God if you see the word El in the middle of it. So <clears throat> that's what you see. But what, what does that denote? Well, it, it denotes in our case, it, it can mean any kind of God, um, it, it, which can be smaller than the supreme God, the, the one that we worship, the true and living God. And so those other things can be gods as well. But here it, it says that he is the God, the God. And that's the important thing. And when, for instance, it's, it's a declaration that Jonah will make to the sailors that I, I worship the God of, of heaven and earth, the one who created all things. That, that's who it is. And so what it means is, is that within the attributes of divine mercy, what it, the role that it plays is, is to point to the outsizedness of God. So in other words, nothing in creation compares with him. And so his ability to show mercy surpasses the sum of our ability to show mercy. Um, that's the reason there are 13 attributes and not 12. 12 is, is a certainly an important biblical number, but 13 is an even more significant biblical number because what it does is it adds God to the mix and it becomes supernatural and divine. So the capabilities are expanded exponentially by God becoming part of the process. So that's why there are 13 divine attributes. And so this one is one that, that we can show if we, we understand this positionally. For instance, it, it, with my children, with employees, anybody who's uh, who you have authority over, who you have power over um, in any capacity. doesn't mean that you as a human being have it, but situationally we can have power. And so in that, in those executive roles, 
where where we have power over another in some shape, form, or fashion, then then this kind of mercy would apply to us. It, but we're scaling things down a long way from God, though. And so that's what it is. It's a name that denotes power as ruler over nature and humankind, indicating that God's mercy sometimes surpasses even the degree indicated by this name. So, so it's this outsized potential for mercy. It's the kind of mercy, for instance, that you would see God showing to Elijah when Elijah shut up the skies. There's no rain, therefore there's a famine in the land. And the mercy that he, he God, shows Elijah is he has ravens feed him, bring him food where he is. And so he's using all of creation to do this. You see the same thing with, with the mercy God shows to Joseph, the son of Jacob, and also to the rest of the family of Jacob. The mercy shown to Joseph is the Lord raises him up to be a significant figure in e- Egypt, and it's not only for his benefit, as he sees, it's for the benefit of his entire family. What you meant for evil, God intended for good. And so his ability to overcome and overwhelm nature, the things, for instance, the the provision of uh, food and water in the wilderness for 40 years, that's the kind of mercy that we're talking about. It's the kind of mercy that allows Jesus to feed 5,000 with a little provision, and and that gets stretched then and blessed by God. So so it's sort of a miraculous, uh, a greater-than-natural provision of mercy. And when we see this right from the beginning, and it's ruler over nature and humankind, this all begins with Proverbs 1-7, for instance, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so that's exactly where the people are at the moment of this revelation in, in Exodus 34. They, they were at a place at Sinai in the presence of God where he revealed things to them, and he began to expound on the covenant. Well, after 10, they'd heard enough. And they said, how about this, Moses, how about you go up on the mountain and you just meet with God, and whatever he says, we will do. And we'll listen to all that later. We're going to commit ourselves in advance to following the commandments that God gives you on the mountain. We're here for you. We're willing to do that. Why are they willing to do that? Because they're fear. They have great fear in this place. There's lightnings and thunders and trumpet sounds and all this other stuff going on, cloud on the mountain and all that. And so the fear of the Lord was their first inclination when they drew near. And so what what did that mean? That means that they, they had drawn near because he said to, and then they drew away because of that fear. Because that's what they knew of him. They knew it from the revelation in Egypt of the plagues. They knew it from the crossing of the Red Sea, which was a mercy to them, and then the the destruction of Pharaoh's army, which was a further mercy to the people of God. But they saw how quickly things can go wrong. And so they, they saw the power of God to destroy, is what they had seen. Now, they, they didn't see um, the same kinds of mercy even though that they think they did, they're, they're still afraid. They've seen the power of God. Now they need to understand the love of God. And so that's exactly what they get. And, and how do you understand and get the love of God? Well, it comes after sin, typically. 
after I've messed up. And so they've messed up here, and they recognize that they deserve to die, and they recognize also that God can do it. He could end them now. God tells Moses in, in 32, uh, chapter 32 of Exodus, that, that leave me alone, let my anger burn fierce against them, and I'm going to destroy them, and I'll raise up a new people for you, out of you. And so they, they, they need to see the mercy of God. The first person who needed to see the mercy of God is Moses. I mean, it was a great mercy that he's called to go and lead the people, certainly, and he certainly knew the mercy of God in his life because he had been saved from um, certain death as, a, as an infant. So he knew these things about the mercy of God, but, but he needed to see how God would deal and relate with his people. Now, in Genesis 9, after the flood, God makes uh, a covenant. And here's, here's the way it reads in Genesis 9, 9 to 11. Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. He's speaking to Noah. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It's for every beast of the earth. I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So that's a great promise. But it's not just a promise for Noah and his offspring and the generations that will come after him. No, this is a promise for all creation that God will never, ever do this again. And then we see that also in in the, not the Beatitudes, but in the... um, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 31, Jesus is is telling them here not to be anxious. Why should they not be anxious? Because they have a Father in heaven who loves them, and he knows all their needs. And so they shouldn't be anxious. Um, In the same way, the people in the wilderness were not to be anxious. They were to gather one day's bread, six days of the week, and and the day prior to the Sabbath, they were to gather two days of manna. And, And there was no benefit to gathering more than the daily need for manna because it just went rancid if you tried to keep it around, with the exception of the gathering that you did on the Sabbath of that extra day's ration. So that that they get this revelation that God provides food and water for them all the time that they're in the wilderness, but they don't see, they don't have the faith to say, we can conquer the land. They had the faith that God would feed day after day. They have faith now, for one thing, that they give thanks for, and that is the dew. The dew falls every day, and they give thanks for that. But when it's time for rain, they begin to pray for the rain. But they see the mercy of God in providing the moisture that the dew provides to maintain life on the earth. So this mercy plays itself in small ways as well as great ways. But So in Matthew 6... He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the 
grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, won't even much more clothe you, O you of little faith. So what Jesus is pointing to is this reality, this mercy of God, that, that's this divine mercy that's poured out on all flesh. And so it's available, and it sustains the universe. And that's exactly what, what we're told again and again and again about Jesus. And so, so God is capable, supernaturally, of doing things that are not possible for us, which is one of those things that always kind of strikes me as odd about, quote, liberal theologians who want to refine and define out any kind of miraculous thing God did and explain it in some naturalistic way. Well, if you can explain everything God does in a naturalistic way, then you don't have a God. You just have a Superman, right? I mean, somebody, he's a human being with some sort of uh, knowledge, maybe, of how to make things happen. But no, that's not who God is. God's the, the one who created the world by fiat. He created the world by speaking it into being. And if I believe in the God of Genesis 1, and a lot of them don't, they don't believe that's how the world got here. They don't believe God created. They believe in some other explanation for how it happened. They, they define out the supernatural. And if you define out the supernatural, then you don't have a God. You just have a, a superhuman at some level. And so it, it's, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus points to creation, and he points to God's care of creation. Points to God's care for all of creation in this passage. He talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, and said God provides for them. He's responsible for all of these things, and and that's the the sort of supernatural thing that's expressed in the word L. He is the God of creation. And then so what does John do in his gospel? Well, he takes us to a really important place right at the beginning. Because what he, what he says is, okay, you believe in the God of Genesis 1. Now let me tell you something else. In the beginning was the Word, and that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what John's pointing us to is this divine mercy was distilled in the person and the form of Jesus who was there at creation and all things were created through him. So that same attribute of God, the creative force and the creative power in the universe and the ruler over nature and humankind is expressed right there in those first three verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So that application of this divine power is then brought into the New Testament in, in the first three verses of John's Gospel. We're told that Jesus has that power because he was there and the force through which creation came into being. In in, in Mark 4, it's also in other Gospels as well, but in Mark 4, uh, verses 38 to 41, what you see in there is, is that they're on, the, on a boat on the lake at night, and a storm comes up. Jesus is asleep on a cushion. The, the uh, disciples are losing their minds because this storm has them scared to death. So they come and they wake Jesus with this question, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And his response could be, that's the whole reason I'm here. 
because you're perishing. I'm glad that you recognize that you're perishing. Oh, you mean here, right now in the boat. Oh, that's a totally different issue. That's an easy one to resolve. So that's what they, that's how this begins. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Well, we had faith. We weren't sure what we thought you might do if you got up, but this kind of exceeds our expectations, let's say. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? At that time, it was an open question. Who is he? I mean, is he a wonder worker? Is he a miracle worker? What, what is he? Is he a great teacher? Who is he? And then they get this revelation on the boat of who he is. He speaks to creation and the wind and the waves obey him. Hmm. There's only one that fits that description, and that's why John begins his gospel exactly the way he does, by telling us he was with God and he was God. In, in Hebrews, the writer there says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And, and that's exactly the point of this divine attribute. It, it begins with fear of the Lord, but it recognizes then further revelation beyond that to, to the fact that this God, who we should fear, is also merciful and loving. And so the writer of Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God. Now, how, how do you separate the radiance from the glory of God? It's the emanation or the manifestation of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature, which is exactly what we, we're trying to say in the creed when we say that he, he is of one being with the Father, one substance with the Father, whatever the Father is, he is. And that's exactly what the writer of, of Hebrews is trying to say here. He is the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, he reveals God in the flesh in a way that no one else ever has, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It, those, are, those are important things. that They should have had the fear that they had that day in the boat, or that night, actually in the boat on the lake when Jesus spoke to the wind and the sea, and they obeyed. That They got a revelation of the power of Jesus. Well, what can he do with that power? Well, how about this? Anything he wants to do. Well, that being the case, if we have a God who is all-powerful, who can literally do anything he chooses to do, we need to know one more thing. What kind of God is he? Okay, so I, this is, goes back to childhood prayer that I use all the time. God is great. God is good. Right. So, so the fact that he's great gives us great fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, okay, so we have a God who, who is fearsome. What kind of God is he? Well, he's a good God. Well, thank God for that. It's, it's in C.S. Lewis, um, in, in the book um, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, kind of gives us that, that sort of idea when uh, Lucy is with the... Um, with the beavers and they're going to take Lucy and Edmund to go see Aslan and they ask is he safe this lion this god that the beavers you know are going to take her to is he safe and the question is of course he isn't safe but he's good 
And that encapsulates this idea probably better than any other thing that I could possibly say. Um, that They know that he's good, even if he's not safe. And that's a good thing because I can trust him. I can trust in his greatness. I can believe in his greatness and I can trust in his goodness. And those are important things. And that's how Jesus comes to make this, this peace known. He makes it known by the miracles that he does. He makes this, this aspect known by the miracles that he does. And the miracles that he does are all in one direction, right? They're to bring healing and wholeness. So it expresses the love of God and the goodness of God. And John wraps all that up in the, in the last part of the prologue to his gospel. So in John 1, 14 to 18, the Word became flesh, so the Word who was with God and was God, and that was in the beginning with God, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a frightening thought. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, truth actually demands grace. This is the point that I made a couple of days ago that has to do with justice. We can't live in a world of strict justice, and the reason is because we're not fit for that because we're sinners. And so truth typically tells me I'm the problem. (laughs) I'm actually the problem in this equation. Grace tells me God's the solution. So I, I know it's revealed to me that I'm undeserving and when I see that, then I, then I can fall into despair that only God can pull me out of because my only hope for eternal life rests in him being gracious and merciful. And so John says, Jesus revealed that. He was full of grace and truth. It's very difficult to be full of grace and truth because sometimes we, we avoid saying the inconvenient truths because we'd have to deal with that. But Jesus allows us to speak those truths in the face of grace. And that's a totally different idea. If, if I know that I don't have to make an excuse, that the, the one I've sinned against is prepared to forgive me, then it's a different relationship than if I don't know how you're going to react when I come and tell you that I messed up. And then he, he goes on to say, for from his fullness... Remember, he's full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received... Grace upon grace. Well, thank God, because that's the thing we need. We need truth, but without truth, we can't... Well, without truth, grace is not truly grace. It's what Bonhoeffer says is cheap grace. It's the grace that I bestow on myself, rather than God bestowing it on sinners who are unworthy to receive that grace. And so, so what John says is, we received grace upon grace. Doesn't mean they didn't receive truth, but it, but it means that they got the thing they really needed once truth became evident, which is grace. He said, "For the law was given through Moses. The law is truth, right? That that would law would point towards justice. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Didn't mean grace was unknown. Just means we didn't have any earthly idea." how much grace was actually there. That, that fullness that's expressed tells me something different. He says, no one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now we know in the face of Jesus, in him dying on the cross for our sins, the only innocent man who ever lived, 
dying on the cross for my sins, tells me everything I need to know about the love and the mercy and the grace of God and that it exceeds anything I could ever have expected.